Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock. With Kim Payne. And Otto Mullins. Do you want to try and do the first uh, part of our pupil, though? Yeah. Let me let me show you this. I picked up a piece of paper on my desk to put in as a, an additional marker so I could put a stop spot. Can you see that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Holocaust Memorial Museum. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. It's from I when used... we went to D.C. This is my current bookmarker. Yeah, hey, look at that. <laughs> um, all right, well, welcome to our first attempt at the remote recording of First Time Through. Uh, I'm your host, Otto Mullins. And I'm Kim Payne. And this is my first time through Apt Pupil, which is the second story in Different Seasons, a collection of short stories by none other than Stephen King, of course. Amazing. Um, we did... Uh, Shawshank Redemption, uh, back in December, for it was supposed to be originally a Thanksgiving episode and ended up becoming a Christmas episode. And uh, because life, yeah, because that's a good, ex- yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, now we're a bit on time with things, and we're just uh, we've been reading the Summer of Corruption in the middle of the best winter we've seen in Southern Indiana in a couple of years. Yeah, and. Uh, all right, As so, we sit here snowed in, figuring this out, because there's six inches of snow on the ground and in southern Indiana, nobody knows how to deal with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you haven't listened to one of our little one-shot side stories before yet, uh, we're going to go straight through. Uh, we're going to read it in portions, just like we do with everything else. So I'm going to read the first half. We split it up directly into halves. And then we're going to, I'm going to give you a little recap. We're going to talk about it a little bit. Um, I'll probably hypothesize a little bit. We'll send you off to a Patreon exclusive episode. And in that, like, three and a half minutes, we're going to finish the novel up. And then we're going to come back and talk about it. uh, Give our full analysis and talk about it. Um, So, if you have read Apt Pupil, just so you're aware, we're going to be reading up through chapter 10, or section 10, page break 10, however you want to say it, and through we're going to read through it, which is something I always have to double-check and ask Kim. Uh, so we get into this one, Summer of Corruption. It's called Apt Pupil. Um, just a little recap then, I guess, right? So yep. this one, it's pretty... We're introduced to a kid named Todd. Todd's just uh, your classic all-American blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. Um, he's got a, a newspaper route, and uh, he's walking right up to the doorstep of a what says Arthur Denker. He pushes on the doorbell, and we're introduced to a character who we ended up finding out is Mr. DeSander. And he, uh, as the audience does not know, but Todd is well aware, is a Nazi who um, has escaped from Germany, went to Argentina, and ended up uh, back in uh, America, immigrating into America with fake papers. And he's been successfully hiding and living there for a while now. And Todd ends up having just randomly seen him on the bus. And he's like, I'm pretty sure that guy looks like a Nazi I saw in my friend's magazines. So he goes and looks at his friend's magazine and he takes it, uh, the picture, and they compare him. And he does decide that it is the Nazi and he comes and he confronts him. And that's that first scene that we see here. Well, and, and he gets a fingerprinting kit because yeah, he this fingerprints kid is resourceful. Him too. Yeah, it's totally crazy. Yeah, he fingerprints this Nazi and decide and like goes 
just really goes to some lengths to decide to make sure that it's him. And he ends up uh, pretty much blackmailing the Nazi into telling him about what he would do as a Nazi. So he really wants to hear about all the awful things that they did it in, you know, the uh, uh, this. concentration camps. Yes. Um, he wants this to one, like he he did work in a fictional setting here. This yeah. was not a real one, but still, oh my gosh. Um, it's so he ends up basically blackmailing the Nazi, Mister Desander, into telling him about everything that happened while he was in charge of the concentration camps and then we the reader end up finding out that he was known as the efficiency expert to the nazis and he was kind of touted as one of the best uh people at at making sure things happened in the concentration camps i don't know how to say all of this it's 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 really really... woof baboofka um you know and it's you know todd's evil it's fun um, we're introduced through it's all very it's kind of segmented it takes this section that we're reading took place over about a year or mm-hmm. eight months to a year it looks like and it tells us I just didn't tape track so it's not like it looks like I just don't know off the top of my head and what is it uh, London Brews uh, okay so it's real good Nazi concentration camps did a research paper and then he came and he blackmails him and he says yep pretty much uh, he ends up telling him about everything um, and Todd's super into it like weirdly into it um, and he keeps asking him these weird questions that Mr. DeSanders like I don't really want to talk about this I haven't thought about this in a long time and he's like I want to hear all of the details like how things smelled and what did it look like and it skips forward a month and then we get into chapter two and they're sitting there talking and they're talking about all the different things and it just gives us a little insight into their everyday life now is Todd going over there and learning more about what it was like to be a Nazi. Then we meet Todd's mom and we find out that his parents think that he's reading to this old man and that's why they're not suspicious of him going over there every day. So we get into October, which is chapter four, they're sitting there eating and uh, DeSander starts to tell him about this nerve gas and uh, you know for the first time we see DeSander start to smile back at Todd and start to enjoy not telling the story but to he starts to remember and to me it felt like he was remembering the power or like the feelings that he had when he was a part of this uh, machine this conglomeration I agree yeah and then we get into chapter five where we meet his dad who is the most standard madman uh 1950s character that i've ever read about in my entire life right i mean he's that's one of the things about todd is he comes from you know the classic suburban family and you know it's a stock picture mom and yes yes um and uh dad pretty much ends up we find out that his grades are slipping quite a bit and he's not paying as much attention in school because he's having so much time spending so much time with uh mr Dusander. um and he pretty much gets told that if your grades don't come up you're not going to be able to do that anymore now we get into uh december and he has so that was his like end of the school year like end of that semester kind of report was like and they were like if you don't get up by the end of the year you're gonna have to go to summer school and stuff so like okay so then we get into December, and Christmas comes along, and Todd brings over a fake uh, Nazi uniform to this old man, and he's like, put it on. 
And he's like, no, I don't, I don't really want to. And he's like, put it on, soldier. And he's like, okay. So he goes and puts it on, and he starts... He gets up on a chair, and he just starts ordering this old man around, and he's like, straighten up your cap, turn around, go left, go right, march, 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 and he starts goose-stepping, like the classic, iconic, like, goose-step, and then Todd gets scared of it, because it, like, actually is like, oh, shit, uh, wait, Todd gets scared of it, because in that moment, he realizes, like, oh, these aren't just cool stories, Nazis were real things that did happen, and I could have... And this is really an evil dude that I have just turned on triggered <laughs> pretty much and he's and so he tries to get him to stop and he gets this moment of terror but mr desander just kind of blanks out and he like you know he he does the thing that steve's really good about writing about he just disassociates and lets his body work and he keeps goose stepping um and todd shouts halt but he eventually stops and we see the first uh, real exchange of power which is interesting we get into number seven, and we find out that Todd's grades are not doing any better. Um, in fact, he's starting to have the uh, straight uh, nightmares about Nazis, of course, you know, as you would expect, and um, uniforms. And one night he goes over to talk to, or no, that's not one night. He talks to him. Uh, he doesn't talk to anybody. And he's just got to make sure that he gets his grades up to this point. And this is the first time that he forges his report card. So that way it makes it look like his grades are better than his. they actually are. Then we go to Mr. DeSander. And we get the first section from his point of view. And we find out that uh, he's been having weird dreams now too. And he hadn't been having these dreams while he's been on the run until Todd came around. And now that Todd's there, his dreams are there. And again, they're there I, again. He's mm -hmm. he had them, but had they had gone away, and now they're back. And uh, he looks at him. He gets up in the middle of the night, and he doesn't think he's going to be able to fall asleep. And then he ends up putting back on the uniform that Todd got him. And he looks at himself in the mirror, and he's finally able to fall asleep. And he doesn't have any more dreams while he's wearing the uniform. Um, we get into chapter eight, and it is Mister Dusander come over for. Mr. DeSander has came over for dinner to Todd's family's house. So Dick Bowden, which is his dad, and Monica Bowden, his mother, uh, are just completely charmed by this man. Think he's incredible, just super wonderful. And they're like, Todd, you're being so, like, quiet. Why are you being so quiet? Like, And, you know, I think Todd's really starting to realize that he's become best friends with the Nazi at this point and that uh, it's going to look real bad on him if anyone ever finds out. He's scared right, of his I mean, parents finding out. Well, and he's scared of everybody finding out at this point. He or he's starting to be aware of that. I mean, he's only a thirteen-year-old kid. He is way in over his head, and he knows it now. And up until this point, Mister, and we get into chapter eight, and it's pretty much, or we're in chapter eight, and they go out for the dinner, and Todd offers to walk Mister DeSander home, and in that exchange, Mister DeSander tells Todd. You know, you used to be in charge. It used to be a matter of you letting out my secret. But we're far along enough now that anyone that finds out is going to question why you didn't say something sooner. Right. And so now, Mr. Dusander, it's it's a mutual bomb now. It's, it's yes, you know, they don't absolutely. have, they can't do anything without each other now. And they're super intricated into each other's life. Um, chapter nine, uh, super sad, made me really upset. Mr. DeSander is just reminiscing on what it was like to be back in the concentration camps, and he's uh, looking for a kitty, and he finds the cat, and then he gets the cat, 
and then he throws the cat in the oven and he lets it just burn to death um and uh he cleans up the oven and then like an hour later todd comes home or comes comes home comes over to his house and he's just like i'd throw that kid in there whenever i want and uh you know that's a fun little section uh really shows you it really shows you how Todd has awoken a monster and has no concept of how to deal with it. Yeah, and I mean, especially, he was peacefully trying to not do this anymore. Right. Until yeah, somebody came and egged him on. He was trying to live his life until he died. Right. And, um, so Todd and ends when, up coming back that day. Uh, and, like, when he shows up, he shows up in a, a tizzy. He is really upset because he's gotten a report card with two Fs on it. But he also has a letter that says the guidance counselor wants to talk to him. Ed French, what a character. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the guidance counselor wants to talk to his parents. To his parents, yes. And, yeah. sorry. So, uh, Mr. Dust Sanders pretty much just says, well, I'm going to pretend to be your grandpa. And we'll say that your parents are fighting and drinking. And... He's like, do you think that they'll fall for that? And he's like, the moment that you say something uncomfortable to a guidance counselor, they don't know how to actually handle it. So, yeah, it's going to be fine. And they talk about, they pretty much argue about it. And this is where you really see that, uh, you know, uh, Mr. DeSander is in charge now. He's going oh, yeah. to be the one calling the, the, the shots. The control now. has absolutely shifted. And it is now, you know, I have to make sure that this stupid kid doesn't ruin my life again. Because um, it's already been ruined, and he's starting to realize that. But he's also at the point now where he's, like, kind of starting to get into the things that he used to and not do. And he's starting to enjoy them. The next, sh- uh, I think it's just still all in this chapter. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a long a long section. A they, long section. Yeah. And then we go and we meet Ed French, Rubber Ed, as they call him, because he's not like other teachers. He wears sneakers, and uh, <laughs> which is such a 1950s like concept, and then, like mean, such a dated so old thing. I never well, I mean, saw. I mean, this is set in the 70s, but no, yeah. it's not. It's set in the 50s, isn't it? 1974 and five. Oh, it is. Damn. Okay, yeah. just an old concept. Regardless, it makes me uh, some you know. Regardless, though. It makes it it builds the world. It makes it much more realistic that like these things happen in this world. And Todd ends up coming over to DeSanders' house after the meeting, and we pretty much uh, you know it it was pretty obvious though that Rubber Ed was taken in by DeSander, and he pretty is he is able to convince him that uh, you know that Todd's home life just isn't great, and that they need to be working on some things there. Uh, and he and says he convinces him to give him some uh, extra leeway homework. on getting well leeway on getting his grades up. Yeah, I don't know if it's leeway. It, it's pretty much he tells him like what he has to do to make sure he's not in summer school. Well, well right. Well, um, Dusander convinces Rubber Ed to give Todd some more time to get his act together instead of immediately expecting his parents to step in and go to counseling or whatever. Yeah, so he ends up having this flunk card system, and if one of them gets sent home, then immediately they have to go into... They uh, have to... There has to be some more intervention. Yeah, exactly. They have to go to counseling for their drinking and marital problems. Uh, (laughs) I heard the kitty. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, see, when I was in school, we called those smoke-ups. (laughs) 
smoke ups when yep. you met when you had to go talk to your parents? No, when when you got a flunk card, when you weren't passing a class, if you had a D or an F, you got a smoke up. Mm, I don't know. that not relatable. We just got text messages or calls home. Yeah. So the, the world of technology has changed. Um, and uh, pretty much, you know, we get this end bit here where Todd's really realizing how much of a mistake he's made. Yeah. Uh, chapter 10 starts and... Uh, oh, snap. I don't think I finished it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't finish chapter 10. I only got partway okay. through and he, uh, through the part that I got, he ends up getting a... Uh, He's in the dog pound, and he ends up uh, adopting a puppy. A dog, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't really see... He didn't do anything bad to the puppy, I don't think. Well. So we should be okay. Let's, yet. let's stop there with, <laughs> with Dinker getting the dog, and then we'll pick up her in the next section. Okay, that sounds great. Sorry, the recording just went... Um, okay, so, like, let's, uh, just right off the bat, I, I told you this originally, like, this one was a little bit harder to get into, um, just because it didn't have as much, it was very vague in the beginning about Todd, and mm-hmm. it's very vague about Desander, it's very vague about everything, it just kind of drops you in and it makes you go, like, okay, why do I care about this, and it doesn't, like, you know, until, like, page 10, where, you know, they've they've pushed whacked around the fact that he's a Nazi the whole time where it's like, okay, he's a Nazi and this kid figured it out. Yeah. Uh, The the world building in this takes just a a teeny bit longer, but for a short story, but it ends up, I mean, it's almost 200 pages, so it's more than a short story, but yeah, exactly. Well, I was also thinking too, it's kind of, it's a good way to show the information being revealed to Dussander as well. To, you know, yes. to him, this kid just appears out of nowhere and just slowly is revealing all this information. So, you know, we as the reader end up in that same position. So we right. get to feel that confusion along with Dussander. We get to feel like we're on his side a little bit. And then we find out he's a Nazi and we're like a little, we feel a little betrayed and we're like immediately flipped on him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's just, it's so, starts out in such a just typical suburban summer of 1974 southern california kid just plain boring um average um you know and going and harassing some old guy in his neighborhood or his nearby neighborhood and uh, i think it's like nearby yeah it's like one or two down and todd pretty much ends up saying you're a nazi I've figured it out this way. And DeSander goes on this big, long monologue about how he's not a Nazi. And Todd just does goes to the telephone and starts to dial 911. And then Mr. DeSander's like, no, 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 wait, wait, no. How did you find out? And it just, that's when it's all like, woof, all, you know, the, the barrier's just down. Right. And I... I don't well, know. Yeah, I mean, and it just, you know, Todd, Todd starts giving him the rundown. Todd says that, you know, you were here from January of 43 to June of 43. And then you were in here from June of 43 to June of 44. And then um, Mexico City from 50 to 52. Then from 52 to 58, he didn't know. 
and then he was here in the states and i saw you on, on the, the bus, bus. And yeah. he starts taking pictures of him at that moment because he thinks that he's similar to the picture that he just randomly seen. So then, yeah, Todd starts uh, taking pictures from him, and he says he's seen this picture of him in an old magazine that his friend Foxy Pegler had. And uh, he doesn't tell anyone because he doesn't want to... It's almost like I mean, he treats him like it's his own pet little secret. He's like, I have a pet Nazi. I can't tell anyone. He, he, he. Um and, Which, you know, you know, is creepy as hell. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, you know, that's kind of what Stephen King's trying to do in this story, is take these, this this basic archetype of what an American family is and make it awful and, like, and show you how evil little boys can be, essentially. Right. Um, and I think that it's also interesting just because he shows you his parents and how oblivious they truly are to everything. And how much they just don't want to see. Right. And how much, you know, an average bright boy, how much trouble he can get into if left to his own devices. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this first chapter ends with him talking about the first, uh, or not the first one, but some of the... uh, you know, concentration camps and what he did there, and we don't got to get too into that stuff. But what I do think is really interesting is the way that Todd is just so cheerful about all of it, and the way that, like, and the way that Stephen King writes his dialect as this just cherubic young boy. You know, mm-hmm. you just see this, like, perfect little kid just being so happy and cheerful. And he's like, and then what happened when their eyeballs burned out? And then what did it smell like? And then what happened? And it's just like, oh, wow. It's it's really unsettling. It is very unsettling to, to hear all the gooshy parts. Right. And you get, during this too, you see all of DeSanders' reticence and his guilt and the remorse he feels. And, you know, maybe... As we get further into the story, you know, it makes me wonder, is this manufactured or is it real? But a lot of it makes me think that it's probably compartmentalized. He probably had to hide away all of this guilt and all of this shame and everything in the back of his mind so that way he didn't suffer every single day for the terrible things that he did. And Well, and it also makes me wonder, you know, was he really remorseful? Was he really guilty? Or did he just compartmentalize it so he could sleep at night? Or did he think that people would expect him to be guilty? And he expected, like, Todd to think he should be guilty, too. So he wanted to put up that act. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, and day one, too, I mean, you know, it's a defense mechanism. He wants to put up that act to make sure he doesn't seem terrible. But right. he does not seem like he has much remorse. So the next chapter, um, you know, I think we find out about... Uh, Specifically, uh, this chapter is set here to tell us about uh, Todd asking about the uniforms. So that way, it's a little foreshadowing moment for Todd bringing in the uniform later. Um, And it's just, it really keeps continuing that Todd is super creepy. You know, he'll say something like, and then they die. And he's like, oh, come on, you can tell me more than that. And he's like, okay, sometimes they would die and other stuff. And they'd be like, that's better. And he doesn't let DeSander just go with vagueness he really makes him 
pin down the details of, and specifics for him so he can remember them all the better. Yes. Uh, chapter three is where we meet Todd's mom. Uh, and they also say apt pupil for the third time. You know, they, said, they say apt pupil a lot in this short story. Uh, and we find out here that his parents think that he's reading him books. And, you know, it's funny because he's like, I'm reading this book called Tom Jones to him. And he's like, yeah, all right, mom, I got to go. And I like this uh, old uh, saying, listen, I got to put an egg in my shoe and beat it. Like, that's an old one. I love it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's like, I got to go read Tom Jones to this old man. And then we get this uh, thing at the end where his mom's just like, I hope there's nothing in Tom Jones he shouldn't be reading. Ma, but it doesn't matter. The world's a terrible place where everything bad's happening and terrible things are always happening. And we're just lucky we got a kid like that. And, uh, I mean, it's just kind of like, it, it really just personifies willful ignorance in one paragraph. Well, I mean, and I don't know that at this point that there's really anything to be willfully, that she is, there's no signs of things that she should be ignorant of. I feel like... Yet. I don't know. Yet. I guess maybe because, I have a little you know, bit of like... He, go ahead. He hasn't Sorry. brought home any outward signs that there's something weird going on yet. Wouldn't you have at least wanted to meet this guy if your kid's going to hang out with him? I mean, maybe, Isn't it but weird that the first time they meet is like eight months later? I, maybe a little bit, but, you know, I guess I would be curious of how my 13-year-old son met a 76-year-old man who was mostly blind, but... Um, you know, in the, it, the the world was a whole lot different place in the 70s than it is now. But so, how much different? That different? I mean, I don't know. I was born in 1974, so, I mean, I guess I can't really speak to that. But because in the 80s, by the time I would have been this age, you know, yeah, my parents wanted to meet who I was hanging out with. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is, like, I feel like my mom wanted to see, like, everyone I hang out with. And I feel like if I was like, all right, I'm going to go hang out with uh, my friend uh, Arthur. He's 75. They would, She would have definitely been like, oh, can I, do you think I can meet him? Would that be okay? Right. Right. You know, and so maybe there is a little bit of willful ignorance or just oblivion to the fact that, you know... I you mean, know, why, why is it there? Why is her thirteen-year-old kid wanting to hang out with this seventy-five-year-old man? That and then it's funny that she can talk about how society is like going to be terrible to all these people, and then at the same time have this faith in this absolute stranger for no reason whatsoever, other than her son's like he's fine, right? Right. Well, he's not fine, as we're going to figure out. So we get into October chapter four. This is a big time skip. Uh, and so, and oh, well, I guess it's not a big time skip. August to October. We've so it's from- month. Yeah. Every chapter is a month of the life, Ish. usually. Um, about a chapter, about a month, usually. Yeah. Every time, it's, sometimes it's a couple of months. But right now, um, you know, it's important that uh, we see how much of a toll this is taking on Dusander. He's not eating. He's just drinking a lot. He's lost a lot of weight, and Todd's making him really talk about some terrible things, and. You know, we start to really see Jacinder's hatred for Todd in this section, and that's important, too. Um, like, the will to fight back. And uh, he starts well, to... Well, and he's telling him all these horrible stories, and Todd's just sitting there eating... Eating ringdings. Eating, a, re, eating ringdings, having a snack, and listening to these 
horrible stories about about the yodeling gas and you know it makes it this is the first time too like i said earlier that where Tissander smiles back at him and uh it's he's coming out of his shell and he is not doing fine and he's <laughs> really you know it feels like he's starting to he found himself smiling back so he wasn't even expecting to find like this happiness and it is the way that steve's telling us and i think that's interesting and important to note yeah, I think that this is, you know, we're we're like three months or so in here from the very first time that Todd showed up. And Dusander's starting to actually enjoy Todd coming over and having uh, an attentive audience for all these horrible stories that he's had to hide for, you know, 30 years. Yeah, he's probably a little like, yeah, if he's been someone that's been proud of what he's done, he's definitely excited to share it with the world, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Let's see. So, okay, we get into chapter five where we meet Todd's dad, Dick Bowden, and like I said earlier, he is the he is the most classic, you know, archetype character that you can think. You know, he's got khakis and a hard hat on. He's an architect. Uh, he's literally an architect archetype, <laughs> and. We end up being dropped right in here, and he is upset that Todd's grades are failing. He's got a couple of Ds, and uh, that is not okay for him. He's been uh, doing really good, but, you know, we get the entire time, uh, you know, Monica and Dick always have these little side conversations in their head where they're like, at least he's not doing heroin. At least he doesn't got VD, you know? Right. Right. And he could be so much worse. You know, the fact that he's reading to this old man and his grades suck is, you know, no big deal. He'll be what fine. A, oh, hopefully he's going to be okay. And uh, Todd ends up convincing his dad that he's just really failing because uh, he has been been trying hard enough and he's just been way too uh, focused on doing so many other things. And that the algebra teacher is really hard. And, you know, a lot of people got uh, D's in that class. And he says that he's going to get his grades back up and he doesn't want to, uh, you know, I think one thing that's fun here is he says he doesn't want to punish the old man for his failings. Mm-hmm. So you just, you can see how clever this kid is, like when he's talking to his dad here, you know. Well, and then there there is the one moment where I think Todd gets his, almost gives himself away a little bit. The anger. Um, the anger because you know his dad looks up and sees an anger look on his face and and then he was like no that was just my imagination you know that willful ignorance that we were talking about you know you want to mm-hmm. see the best in something or someone so you ignore those flashes of the inconvenient things to you right uh my favorite it doesn't doesn't fit the uh doesn't fit his scenario, so that's not possibly what could have happened. Yeah, exactly. My favorite line in this chapter is, uh, whistling his fatherly duty discharge, Dick Bowden unrolled a blueprint and bent over it. <laughs> I love that so much. He's just like, woof, all done, did it, got to all right, back to work now. And it's funny and interesting, because so far there's been no check-in, you know, and it's kind of like, I know when... I was failing a class or something. My mom would, you know, talk to me about it. And then, like, a couple weeks later, she'd ask me, like, hey, how's that class going? Any better yet? Uh, and never does that seem to happen from Todd's yeah. parents. No. It's just a blind assumption and faith that he did it. Uh, and I mean, like, he's obviously instilled that trust in his self and his parents, which is great. But got to do other stuff, too. 
You know? Right. Uh, chapter six. This is uh, the chapter where Todd brings it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. And our, you know, jolly little Santa Claus Todd brings Mr. DeSander a knockoff SS uniform. Um, what's interesting, too, is Todd doesn't know this, but he actually ends up bringing him a lieutenant's uniform, which is exactly what DeSander was when he was a part of uh, the uh, uh, Nazi party. And he forces him to put it on. And he looked up some German words, it seemed like, so he could, like, direct him around. And Well, I mean, I think that most everybody knows the word halt. I mean... Halt. Well, I mean, yeah, achtung. Achtung. Yeah, I don't attention. know that. Yeah, I mean, I know <laughs> it means attention, but, like, do you think, like, this 13-year-old, like, just casually would have known that? Well, I mean, he... We established from the very beginning that he was completely enraptured by this situation by this all of the things that happened in the concentration camps and he had read everything he could get his hands on so you know that would have been a word that he would have run across just in you writing that research paper maybe i can see that too but i also like the idea that he just looked up german words to barge him around but that is the only I one mean, he says so i guess that's not as much as yeah um and regardless though mr desander just kind of disassociates and just does it yeah, and uh, I think that this is the first point when Todd realizes that he has he's not in control anymore, and or not in complete control anymore, and and he gets that first finger of fear. You know, we start to it's simultaneously Todd shouting orders, but at the same time, it's Mister Desander reveling in the fact that he's doing what he knows how to do. Yeah. I mean, his uh, instinct kicked in, and it's just, it's terrifying. And uh, he's remembering all these little moments where he, uh, he's having these flashbacks of where he would learn being a soldier on these parade grounds and everything, mm -hmm. and what uh, punishments it would be like. And he's not even really listening to Todd anymore, but from Todd's point of view, he's like completely in charge, and he's just so strong. And then... He suddenly just has this realization with this Nazi marching around him, uh, and he just gets so scared, and he sees all of these pictures of bodies and everything just flash through his mind, and he starts, uh, he just yells, stop, and Mr. Dusander doesn't listen to him, uh, because, I mean, you know, like we were talking about, you know, there's specific words that he would have been, like, trained to, uh, and then Todd screams, halt, and he does stop, and uh, Mr. Dusander stops, and uh, he's kind of confused by what just happened. Todd's a little confused by what just happened. And uh, Todd says, you can take it off now. And he doesn't really, he says this little thing where he's like, I'm not really sure if I even want you to ever put it on again. For a few seconds there, dot, dot, dot. And then we're in chapter seven. And, you know, it's that implication that Todd had a thought he didn't even want to finish. You know, mm -hmm. he was too scared to even finish the thought. And that scares, that, the idea that he could be scared of his little pet is probably more terrifying than, like, what Mr. DeSander could actually do to him. Yes. Uh, chapter 7. And uh, he's sitting... Oh, yeah, this is the one. He's sitting in the uh, park, hanging out, looking at his uh, report card. There's some a couple making out nearby. And uh, he's thinking about all the dreams that he's been having lately. 
And uh, this is actually the first time where he fixes his report card. Um, and it's what, January, right? Or is it February? January. Yeah, January. So he fixes his report card and he takes it over to uh, his parents. And he, you know, he doesn't give himself all A's or anything, but he brings them all up to C's and B's and A's. So that way it's not suspicious. Then we get that. Uh, and, you know, it's really just seeing the effects of what happened, like how that experience has really like changed him and how like, you know, he used to look at this guy as a star. He really like loved him and appreciated him. Or I don't know, admired him. That's the word for it. Yeah, I think that uh, that's that's an accurate word. And now he's scared of him. And there is like a legitimate terror of him, maybe not in what he had done, but for Todd himself. He's only scared for himself, of course. That's, you know. Well, right, because now he knows that he is intrinsically tied to this guy because he's known for at least 6 months, 7 months who he is. And all all of his things are falling apart, and so if it comes out, it's going all of it's going to come out and he's going to be in trouble too now. Right. Um and uh Mr. Arthur Denker, as he's known, Kurt Dusander, um, we come into his house and he's there. It's two thirty or two forty in the morning. He can't sleep and he's just thinking about how much stress he's under and how much he hates this little boy. And uh, he goes to the closet and it has this fun line. Uh, he walked across the bedroom and opened the closet door. He brushed hangers to the right, reached into the shadows, and brought out the sham uniform. It hung from his hand like a vulture skin. He touched it with his other hand, touched it, and then stroked it. You know, it's that acknowledging it and then loving it. Uh, and the way that he went from, it's something, you know, if he was truly remorseful and, like, ashamed of what he did, he would probably have thrown that uniform away. Or, you know, he wouldn't have right. kept it. But the fact that he kept it and now he's loving it is very telling of what his true nature is. Right. He puts the uniform on and it's the first time he feels safe and comfy enough to go to sleep. Uh, and I think it's interesting how important that structure must have been to him. That mm -hmm. uniform, that idea, that party, that strength that he had not from being an individual. Because he doesn't seem to have much strength when he's an individual at all. Right. When he's alone, an old man by himself, he was so harmless and didn't want to do anything. But now that he has just one person, he has one more number, he's trying to do so much more. You know, and originally that wasn't how it started, but the moment that he switched the power and he was able to get that, it is very obviously what he's trying to go after now. He's trying to keep his position and maybe even find some ways that he can uh, do the terrible things that he likes to do without getting caught. Right, right. Or at least maybe those things are in the back of his mind as, you know, I can't sleep now and this is sufficient, but what am I going to have to do in the future? Right. So we get to February, uh, Chapter 8. And Mr. DeSander has come over for dinner for Dick and Monica to meet him finally. You know, it's only been almost a year. And uh, he's had, uh, they've been drinking a little bit, of course. And it's fun. Uh, uh, DeSander makes fun of their alcohol and he just doesn't like it. So, you know, it's all from his point of view. Right. Uh, 
it's interesting because like we were talking about earlier, Todd is being so quiet and he's not saying anything. And well, sure, because he's worried if, if Dusander go is going well. to blow it. Right. If he's going to say something that's going to trigger a red flag. And so he's scared beyond belief. And of course, Mr. Denker, uh, pulls it off with flying colors you know almost like he's been living a lie for 20 years um 30 yeah yeah exactly crazy how somebody who is like completely immersed in a lie to protect themselves can continue to be completely immersed in that lie yeah exactly and todd's just completely taken aback by it and he's like he's almost upset that Mr. DeSander not only did it well, but he kind of became friends with his parents. Right. You know, it puts... He's... Todd's really upset about it, in fact. He starts yelling at him. Uh, and Mr. DeSander just is like, you need to keep your voice down. People will hear. Uh, and it's fun because it's in this... The way that Stephen King writes it is it's raining out and he's walking him home and he brought his umbrella and... Uh, Todd would co- comes in and out from underneath the umbrella. You know, it's like these, you know, he will slowly coax him under the umbrella, under the rain, and then he'll step out from under it. Uh, and you just get these illusions of, like, him being underneath the umbrella of his control uh, versus when Todd's, like, kicking against it. But really it is about, by the time they get there, um, he pretty much just says, I'm going to leave you, goodbye, and he walks away, and... Todd's just standing there in the rain, and it kind of leaves you with that sense that without Mr. DeSander, Todd's going to be left out in the rain. He's going to be left out alone and done right. for. Right, and, you know, there's a whole thing about, I think that at this point, if Todd could have walked away, that maybe everything would have been okay, because we're still at a point now that he could walk away. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing really that's happened all that much. Like, And that's the thing, too, is, you know, if they just mutually just didn't say anything, like, we don't have to worry about any of this, but the fact that they both are vying for control of each other is what's changing the situation. The fact that both of them think that they're the one that needs to be in control of the other to be safe in this situation right, uh, is just not helping them, you know. Well, and, and quite frankly, one of the, I mean, they both need to have a certain amount of control over this situation or it could ruin both of them. Because it's been going on long enough now that it could be problematic if either one of them talked. But nothing has happened yet to the point that if they could just trust each other enough to remain quiet about what has happened, that they could walk away. Right. But they obviously have no trust. All right, so then we come in, and it is chapter 9. Mr. DeSanders looking for a nice little kitty cat. It's looking for a stray cat. Um, and uh, in his, in between him looking for the cat, we're getting him, and it's almost like these loving flashbacks of the things that had happened and what he would do. Um, and it's well and and there's also i mean he's trying to coax this stray cat over to the the bowl of milk but he's also like maybe the boy's having trouble with his studies or bad dreams or both because he hasn't been to visit him in a while yeah yeah okay um and he's 
wondering why he hasn't been there. And he's definitely, like we were talking about, he's got a lot of angst and upset, like, energy and mm-hmm. uh, anger towards Todd. He's put him in such a bad situation. He's also, I imagine, probably upset that he's coaxed out this monster again that he has, right. was able to shove away and not have to cover up for every day. Um, yeah, and, he, had, uh, he had put that part of him to to bed and in a box and had locked it, and Todd came along with the key and unlocked it. Right. And well, then without get, the key and forced it open. I think one thing that's fun here is we get this, uh, Mr. DeSander tells him about this interrogation technique where he would bring people into his room after they'd been starved for a while. He'd put on a stew across the room, and he would just sit there and really nicely ask them questions. And eventually they would just be so hungry and they'd just, you know, he'd be like, you can have some of that once you tell me. And they would eventually say it. And he's just so proud of that. He was, you know, you could have always done the same thing with a gun and whatever, but the stew was elegant. And I really feel like that's going to come back into play. Like that's going to be, you know, we're going to see a situation where that, I just know that that's going to be some direct foreshadowing to something. Like that was a very important thing that seemed to be. But also it could just be the way that, like, you know, he's calling softly this kitty and, like, getting him to come over. You know, it could be the, could a, be. an allusion to that. Um, he eventually gets the cat over. He grabs the cat. The cat's fighting against him. And quickly he runs inside and throws it into the oven and uh, burns the cat to death. You know, as you do with strays and you, if you're a Nazi. Right. Uh, he cleans out his oven, comes back, and Todd comes in later. Uh, and... And he's like, yuck, why does your kitchen smell disgusting? Yeah, sorry, I was reading ahead slightly, and he's like, yeah, it's gross. And he's like, oh, I just cooked my dinner, and I burned it, my bad. Uh, right. And it's never really mentioned again. It just it, it is the passing moment of a serial killer. Uh, it's, um, what's the word? Escalation, you know? Right. It's right. gone now. We've, we've gone from just thinking about it to, to the first action. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to, that's not great. Um. Okay, then uh, the next, it doesn't say the next day, but a couple of days later in the same month, um, which is why this chapter is so long, because this is all stuff that happens in the same month, Todd comes over and he says, hey, uh, I'm in trouble. And, you know, also Todd starts swearing here, which I thought was interesting and fun to know. You know, he's had a couple of swear words every like once in a while, but now he's like really angry and he's really letting him fly. Right. Because up to this point, it's been the swear words of a kid who's like, ha ha ha, I know this word, so I'm going to say it when my mom and dad can't hear me. Now he's saying it in anger. Right. And fear. Um, And Mr. Dussander takes it aside. He reads the note and it is saying hey your kid's failing classes he's not doing well enough and he was doing well enough uh why don't you come in for a parent teacher conference and uh this you know this is where mr Sanders says you know if you don't start paying attention and you don't listen to me i'm going to be able to just tell them that you know all of these things so i'm you know it's been almost a year now what was it and you wanted to know what was it how did you say all the gushy parts uh and todd just kind of he stops and he realizes what danger he's in now and then desander smiles at him and sips his bourbon so it's a direct parallel to what todd had done you know um and now that desander's got the control and he's sipping his drink he says uh 
this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pretend to be your dad, uh, your grandpa, and we're going to say that your parents are fighting and your mom's drinking. And, uh, you know, it's... Well, and this is an important part, you know, where Todd, where we get an insight that Todd is, isn't as smart as he thinks he is. Because he says, you're a U.S. citizen. America wouldn't let them take you. I read up on that. But, you know, Dusander puts him in his place. He, he's not a U.S. citizen. His papers are were illegal. They were faked. Mm-hmm. You know, so... It's not really how it works, buddy. Also, I feel like in this time, there's Nazi hunters, like, actively, like, out there in the world, like, looking for ex-Nazis, like, and they don't care oh, about yeah. jurisdiction. No. Like, like, you put a small newspaper article out there, and there's going to be, like, eight of them around his home immediately. Right. I mean, because this is only 30 years after the end of World War Two, So even, you know, even the, the older officers are still in their 60s and 70s so you know maybe in their early 80s but they're not they're still they're still there. within a normal lifespan so you know in 2021 that's a completely different thing you know these people are dead now i mean there may be a straggler out there who was 18 at the end of the war but not your higher-ups yeah um and oh shoot i was gonna say something and then i forgot it nope don't other matter cut it out oh so basically uh a part of the plan that they've decided to as on top of him going to pretend to be his parents is he is going to force todd to come to his house every day after school and todd's going to have to study there um, and he's going to study for hours and he's going to bring his grades up and he's going to do all of these things. Um, so he ends up sitting, ending that moment there where he's like, all right, sit down and start studying. And, uh, he's like, I don't want it. And he's like, well, sucks for you. Time to start studying. Right. And he sits there just, uh, sipping his bourbon while he studies. And then we flash over and we are going to start the meeting almost immediately f- between DeSander and, uh, Ed French. And we find out a little bit about Ed French, like we were talking about, and uh, it really makes me feel like uh, Stephen King is just making fun of his old guidance counselor or something. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's got a turtleneck sweater on, but he wears Keds, because Keds makes him connect cooler to the students. And if he can connect to the students like other teachers can't, they'll tell him their secrets. And it's like, okay, buddy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's a thing, you know. He's, um, he's out of touch, but, you know. I think what's fun about this entire section, though, um, and I mean, it's a lot of, you know, what's exactly what you'd expect, but it's really cool because we see it all from Ed French's point of view. So mm-hmm. we get to experience how good DeSander is at fooling people and how good he is at manipulation and talking and explaining away things. And right. Thus, Anders has such a wonderful job of never being blatant about anything and letting them draw their own conclusion and then just confirming it. Right. Um, you know, that that vagueness of lying. You, uh, there's, I really have always enjoyed that idea of, you know, I'm not lying if you assume something and I just confirm it, am I? You know, if you assume right. that I'm a millionaire and I just go, oh, yeah, sure. 
did I lie to you or did you know did I just that not just, not right. tell you everything uh, and that's always been an interesting ethical conundrum to be in um, there's like a bunch of plays about it and I feel like that's kind of what Dus Sanders is like really good at too yeah he is he just lets that guidance counselor draw those conclusions and he confirms them or he lets in a little bit more of a slip of a detail just so that way the guidance counselor can confirm something else um, we get to the uh, end of the thing and he's essentially convinced him to uh, if Todd is failing any more classes from here and out he's going to send him home with one of those smoke up flunk cards that we were talking about earlier and if he gets one of them that his grandpa, you know, Dosander, will personally go to Todd's parents and he will take them to counseling so that way they can fix Todd's home life and that way he can get better grades. Uh, right. Which, I don't know if that's just exactly how it would work, but, you know, he's, he's, he's doing his job. Well, but, but rubber, rubber Ed thinks that that's what the problem is now, and so he's willing to buy that and go along with that that's what it is and not have to worry about it anymore exactly and he sends him off and we get this fun little uh, bit at the end where he's like in the entire 40 minutes that we were talking i don't think he called his grandson by his name once uh so we just have that fun little moment where we see that desander isn't perfect at fooling people and there is one little hole that he left open and so right. you know now that we have I think that's what's interesting, too, is the guidance counselor uh, is the only one that knows anything. Like, that, or has even, like, the slightest, anything. like, little inkling, yeah. Um, and, and he then, doesn't even really have enough suspicion to pursue anything. He just thinks it's weird. Yeah. And it's just one of those, like, odd little inconsistencies that he noticed about his day. Uh, Todd ends up coming back to Dust Sanders that night. He comes over real fast, and uh, Dust Sanders tells him exactly what happened. Um, and I think I was mistaken. I think this is where he sets down the rules about studying. And this yeah, is where he's is. like, this is what we're going to do. Um, and and he you're going to work him, harder than you have ever worked ever in worked. your life yep. because you've got to keep our secret. And he sits down and he says, you can't underestimate anyone, and I have to do this for myself. I have to be safe. Um, and... Sanders taking it serious, which, I mean, it makes sense. I feel like the only way he's survived this long is by taking every single credible threat seriously. By right. every single threat seriously. It doesn't even have to be credible. Well, um, and, I mean, yeah, he's he's been hiding for 30 years, and he couldn't let just anything through. Right. Um, then Chapter 10 is him getting a dog under a fake name. Uh, and then I haven't got much further than that. That's only like a page or two in. Um, yep. But that's what we've read so far. So, yeah, so. Uh, it's getting really good and interesting. I really like it a lot, um, more than I thought I would, uh, based on the first 10 pages at least. It's, I like the way that. Like, I don't think you'll be disappointed in the end. <laughs> I think I'm going to like the ending because I feel like, huh, I'm really, I really don't know how it's going to end. I think that's what's so interesting. You know, I feel like it's either going to be like musical destruction or like amicable, like ending. And I feel like that either way, I feel like both characters need comeuppance though. That's the thing too. It's like Todd needs to be punished for this. 
And also, Desander is needs to be punished for everything, especially after he's killed the cat and like everything now too. You know, and I feel like the escalation is only going to get worse and worse and worse. Now it's a matter of is he going to take this child and lock him in his basement and like do things to him and stuff, or is he going to like? Are they going to like together kidnap Ed French when he comes to like investigate these things? Uh, and I think that that's interesting, you know, they, they definitely talked about that yodeling gas for too long, for that not to be important, the Zyklon B, I don't know if Zyklon B has been mentioned in another Stephen King book or something or not, if it is, please, Stephen King Universe, let us know, um, let's see, what do you, what are you, uh, <laughs> what do you remember about your first time reading through this one, anything in particular? Um, I was probably about Todd's age when I read through this the first time. Okay. I was in, in middle school, and I remember thinking, man, that is so creepy um, that a kid my age could do all of these things, and nobody questioned it. You know, I, of course, I would never have been brave enough to fake a report card or to sign my parents name or anything I would have I would have been terrified of getting caught um, and he's just so nonchalant about it he just you know fakes his report card he, he changes it to show his parents and then changes it back to turn it in because in those days we turned our report cards in to back into the school oh, at so the end so they would put all of the grades on it for the whole year so, you know, he's he's falsifying his report card twice, once to go to his parents and then back to go back to school. Um, so there's it's just it's crazy to me that he got away with what he did, up, even up even just up to this point, all the things he got away with. No, yeah, I didn't even realize that that was something he would have had to have done is falsify mm -hmm. it twice. <laughs> you know, and it's I feel like the thing that we're seeing is this pattern of escalation from uh, uh, Dusander, but I think it's only because he's already an established monster. You know, with Todd, he's a new monster. He's just coming into his own. He's just figuring things out. He just now is going down the path of the, the, the darker side of the path, you know, the eviler things, and he's right. just and now... And I think the, the reason he gets away with as much as he does is because he's just a typical Southern California suburban kid from a typical suburban family. You know, dad's an architect, mom's a stay-at-home mom, and, you know, there's no indicators that he would be lying. There's no reason to think that he would be lying. Yeah, and he's... Put it on a good show, too. And, I mean, that's the thing is he doesn't have enough of a track record to, like, decide if something's good or bad either. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I don't really have anything else to guess or, like, anything actually anyways. That was... Yeah. Thank you for listening to the first half of this. Uh, if you stick around in about five to six minutes, I bet you'll see hear the second half of it. I bet and you will. you will get my first reaction. I will be like, man, apt pupil was...
Here at First Time Through, we have been lucky enough to garner such support that we've improved our microphones, our sound setup, our programs, and everything that has to do about recording this podcast. And it's truly been because of our patrons. So we wanted to have a special segment where we thank our February patrons this month. So... Thank you so much, especially uh, for everyone that supported us. But we did have a new patron this month, Jake. Thank you so much, Jake Campbell Garrick. And thank you, Don Payne. And thank you, Ronnie Jonah. And thank you, Brad Elliott. You guys have made it possible for us to make improvements every month. And for us to bring a lot more consistent quality to our podcast. And we're really grateful that we're able to do that. So we just wanted to shout out and give you our appreciation. If you're interested in becoming a patron of First Time Through, you can do that at patreon.com slash first time through. There you can become one of our patrons for as low as $2 a month and garner cool rewards like stickers, handmade pint glasses, handmade t-shirts, and even some fun little phone backgrounds. On top of getting our digital content a couple of days early and exclusive digital content regarding TV shows and movies covering Stephen King's work. Here at First Time Through, we're really excited to be growing uh, at such an exponential rate that we have our first sponsor. So thank you to Elliott Health Advisors. If you are in the Michigan, Kentucky, or Indiana area looking to improve your health insurance needs, please contact them through Facebook at Elliott Health Advisors. I know that I had two teeth before I talked to them, and now I have seven. So we can make things better. So we've got a special event coming up on March 18th. We're going to read the new novel later, together, for the first time. Have you ever had your wife die and then you were a preacher and then you were wondering, how can I bring my wife back to life? Because I'm sure that you have. It's a very specific situation that we've all dealt with. So join us March 25th where we start The Revival by Stephen King. I think it's just Revival. Oh. Well, join us on the 25th, where we start Revival by Stephen King, a story I know that one sentence about. Just uh, during that commercial break, Kim and I went off into separate rooms, and I finished the novel, uh, the short story, and she probably played on her phone and waited for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because this one, I've, I've read this one, I've read almost all of them many times. This one, though, really stuck with me, so I've gone back to it several times. Before we go any further, do you remember anything particular about the first time you read it? Um... We talked a little bit about the fact that I was probably about the same age that Todd is at the beginning of the book the first time I read it. And I can remember I was in, I I have very vivid memories of being in seventh grade and reading this book in science class. I'm tattling on myself here um, because I was always like reading a book under the desk because I was just, that's who I was. Um, And I just remember, you know, trying to, to not, show my shocked face at some of the things um, when I was reading this 
in class because <clears throat> I was a rotten kid. <laughs> I wasn't a rotten kid. I was a really good student, and so I was always ahead, and so I was usually reading a book under my desk. Um, but I remember just that. I It was just so intense um, trying to not be visibly shocked when I was reading something that is, quite frankly, really shocking. Um, I also have very vivid memories of reading The Body, which is the next short story in this book. And remind me, because we got to talk about that, because it's really cool. And I'll call out some friends of mine, and they'll they'll probably remember that, too. Um, when you, sorry, I got really sidetracked. Um, which friends, like, are you talking about? Um, Any of them I know? No. Okay. Because it's, I, I, I remember my friend Erin Dyken Wood sitting at the table, and I'm going to tag her on Facebook when we get to the body and talk about that because she'll remember me reading that part of the book out loud. I guarantee it because we were supposed to be working on a group project. <clears throat> and I, I know I remember her being at the table. I cannot remember who the other two people were. Um, but uh, I was reading a section in the body out loud to them, and we're like all going, uh, uh, uh. Well, I like those reactions. I'm excited to read that then. Yeah. Well, let's get into the second half of that, people, then. Um, last time we left off, uh, Mr. Dusander had just adopted a puppy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fun thing about that puppy is it's never mentioned again. Like, not even passingly. No. It's just, it it's disappears. It's just left to your imagination. So, I mean, it's not, my imagination is pretty, like, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what I, I happened. Mean, I think that it's a very obvious implication what he is doing. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any secret in what he did with that dog. Um, so we get back in, and uh, this is the first day that they uh, we really see Todd has come in, and he's starting to uh, study. And this is the first chance that we see Dissender has a little bit of uh, pride in him mm -hmm. a little bit you know he's like a little proud of todd's like work ethic even if he is kind of being a jerk to mr desander but i mean of course he is like well yeah todd he's lost he's, control of the situation yeah, absolutely um and then todd has his first wet dream and it's very uh you know it's interesting because there's a part of me that finds it weird and creepy when adults write about teenagers and like they sexualize aspects of a teenager but i do think that here showing that todd at a young age is sexually interested in pain and violence is important i feel like that's really an important thing to highlight because this is still you know, relatively early on, I mean, he hasn't even been associating with Dusander a year yet. So this is still relatively early on. And, and you know, he's 14. He's young. Um, and yes, I do agree with you that it is weird when adults do that. But I think that it's less weird that it's a male writer writing about a boy. Yeah, it, it makes it a little I think bit... it would have been super creepy if he'd have been writing about it from a girl's perspective. Yeah, like if there was ever a point of like, is there a point of Carrie where she starts having wet dreams and those kind of things? Yeah. And it, that, yeah, I, and I agree with you. Like, I think that that makes it a little bit more based in reality for Steve yeah. in that way. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't think that he was having weird Nazi 
sexual oh, yeah, no, wet no, dreams. No, no, no. But, but I, I like think he that he, had a he could dream. relate to a 14-year-old boy having a wet dream. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> so. the joy of being a boy. Most of us can. <laughs> um, so after he wakes up from that wet dream, he comes to the conclusion that he needs to kill Mr. Dissander um, in a strange and shocking jump of revelation. Uh, because he has to get control back. And I, and I guess that... Yes, I get he is, why he needs to kill him. I don't understand why this why dream this is, the jump. is the trigger for right. him. And like he has like this, the way it's described just does not, in my mind, trigger. I got to kill the old man now, but the plot uh, is leading like it was very obviously towards like uh, the you know the idea that one of them is going to have to die. Yes, and you know, keep in mind that this is a condensed plot line you know we just got done reading almost 1200 pages and this is you know what 250 so i mean you just got to keep in mind that this is a much shorter time span to get to the no and i get that i guess it would have just been if i wish that they were just like two separate dreams maybe the wet dream to show us this part of his characteristic and then a dream to show him the fear that he has of mr desander and like how he's lost control Right. Um, yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. Just something like that. Uh, but regardless, uh, it, it sets up the rest of the book now. Like it We does. know like what the goal is. Todd's going to try and take out Mr. Desander, and Mr. Desander's going to try to not die. Right. You know, as you want, as you do when you're as 70. As you do, yeah. Um, we get into Chapter 11, and it is now May. So I think it's jumped a couple of months, right? Yeah, we went from, like, March to May here. Let me go back and look real quick. April. So it's oh, no, April so it is May. the next month, yeah. Um, yeah, because he met with, uh, Dusander met with uh, Ed French in March, and then the the flunk cards come out in May. So here we are on Flunk Card Friday. He gives him, uh, they're handing out the flunk cards, and he puts one down on Todd's desk, and he flips it over, and it says, I'm sure glad I didn't have to give you one of these for real. And Todd almost faints, because, I mean... It's a mean joke for a teacher, but also... Yeah, it is. But I mean, you know, that's the... Because he knows what the consequences are if he gets one of these for real. For that real. everything's, everything's going to come out. But the teacher like, doesn't has, know like, that. like, made these dire consequences for himself. The right. teacher just thinks, like, he might have to go to summer school, buddy. Right. And so it makes... For everyone else in the world, in Todd's world, all of his problems have to seem so insignificant and small. But for Todd, who actually knows everything, like his problems are huge and like right. world changing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, being a good student and then falling off is really traumatic anyway. And then when you compound that with the fact of why he's falling off, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he ends up going up to. Um, uh, after his class that day, he goes to Mr. Dusander's house and he decides that today's the day he's going to try to to kill him. And mm-hmm. he has a plan for when he goes and reaches into this basement to grab a bottle of whiskey. He does this specific maneuver where he will uh, let go of the railing and hold himself up on the ceiling while he reaches around up. Uh, you know, I, it's in my head it makes perfect sense. Right, it's, it's hard, hard to, to like, describe. Yeah, he essentially just puts himself in a precarious situation on the top stair. To reach, to reach down in to get and the grab bottle, a of bottle of liquor, right? And Todd's plan is to just push him there, right? Because it will look like you know he just, he tri- just slipped, slipped being and drunk and right. fell. So he gets up out of his chair and he goes to push him. And Mister Desander says, "You know, I can hear you. You're not as quiet as you think." And he turns around with the bottle of whiskey and he 
turns the entire story on Todd in this one moment, and he says, I have a safety deposit box, and it has a document in it. And if I die, that document will be revealed. And in that document, it tells everyone everything. everything. And, you know, it's it's just the same thing that Todd said to him earlier. Right. Yeah, I've but got a Todd friend is with so flustered a letter. And he's so, like, confused and just like, he's a child, you know? He really is. I mean, and, and as smart as he is, he's really not very sophisticated because, you know, He's a kid, and he said he's got left a letter with a friend. But, you know, when you were 13, 14 years old, did you have a friend that you would trust with something like that? No, no. Not not even I don't even. I barely have friends close. now I trust with that. I mean, I think, I'm pretty sure I do. But also, I mean, like. Yeah, I do now. When I was but, 13, like, no. I also you know, probably wouldn't have been. I don't know. If I did have, if I found a Nazi when I was 13, I probably would be like, are you really a Nazi? Is that, right? Are you really? Is that? Whoa. Right. And then I would be really scared and run away. Oh, yeah, probably. Just I mean. Just because, like, when you're 13, like, now at least, like, it's like the boogeyman almost. They're horror stories, you know? Yeah. Well, and now when you were 13, you know, they really were just boogeymen. I mean, there were probably, yeah. I don't even know that there were any that any known Nazis still alive when you were 13. You know, there were some when I was 13, but they were in South America still. But, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's just crazy to think. I mean, it would be like finding out that John Wayne Gacy was your neighbor and knowing his secret. Mm -hmm. Just unlikely that you wouldn't have said something to like somebody somebody like a, anybody like a, particularly todd's moral compass is just damaged it really know? is and i think that that's an important thing to establish that you know todd comes from a pretty average family and i know we've said that it's it, a normal average run-of-the-mill family but his moral compass is really off. really off and usually when you hear about that in media when you hear about that in you know tv shows and movies it's because their moral compass is damaged because of abuse or a mm -hmm. trauma or whatever and this kid you know he's had the average suburban easy middle class life lifestyle think, yeah so it's interesting to see how you know some people are just born damaged. Well, no, I think it also just talks about the entitlement of specifically like that like type of child. Yeah. You know, that they think that they're able to just walk into a Nazi's house and tell them how it's going to be with no consequences and no repercussions. Well, and yeah, there, there is that. That's a lot that, of entitlement. That, that is a lot of entitlement. But there's also a certain amount of damage there that, you know... I don't know if it's like I I don't really see where his damage would be from, you know. I don't either. And that's but the thing is like it's gotta. If you were to look at it now, like in a modern sense, he'd probably got a bipolar disorder, probably. or something along those lines that would have changed the way that he looked at the entire world on the flip of a dime. Mm -hmm. And especially you know in the seventies, that's not something that anyone's going to medicate for, especially no. not in a child. No, no. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that could have been going on with Todd. Um, but at this point, he leaves the house, and it's a week later, and he's sitting in the park, and he is thinking about how he needs to kill Dussander and how he could do it when he hears a snort. Yeah. And he, this snort just keeps happening over and over again. 
and he gets down and he's like sitting on like some kind of like almost like a, like a ledge it seems like yeah he's at a um a park not a park it's a um a train yard train yard and so he's sitting kind of probably up on somewhere where the train cars would be unloaded with a, a gap underneath it um and so he looks down in that little gap and there is a, a homeless drunk man there and he asks him for some money and then the drunk man says hey you know i'll do some inappropriate things to you for a dollar and then mm-hmm. todd runs away thinking about how he should have killed that guy yeah you know and it's you, it's just that first that step towards it's right, escal- that, that step of escalation right because now we've gone from todd thinks that he needs to kill somebody who legitimately has a hold over him to you know, Todd thinks that he should have killed some random wino. Right. That scared him. Mm-hmm. Then he should have almost like, what is it? He says something about, uh, uh, well, uh, oh yeah, he says that nobody will miss him. And he's just like, uh, and who could trace it back to you? Absolutely nobody. Right. You know, it's that, again, for me, it, like, it's a story of entitlement. You know, he's like so entitled that there's just, no thoughts that uh, are repercussions. Right, exactly. He, you know, it. it's an anonymous person. It would be an anonymous killing. And, you know, they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't even find the body for a long time. Nobody would report him missing. So, you know, whatever, man. Um, so we get into the next month in June and Todd is coming to see Mr. Desander. He's gotten his final report card and he's, past all of his classes he's actually gotten everything up to a's and b's mm-hmm. um and he's still going to change some of his grades though he's got to change the averages because so it you looks know. better than it is right um and he starts to talk to Dustander about how like they're both free now and he's like no you're not free anymore like i really don't think you understand the situation um he says if i die ever like that document's coming out right and todd's like well you could die from anything and he was like well yep that is true so maybe you should quit smoking and quit drinking and <clears throat> take better care of yourself. And pretty much he says that Todd needs to be there for him pretty and uh, be around so that way he stays alive as long as possible because anything that does happen to him will immediately destroy Todd's life. And he threatens him, you know, what happens when you're 22 and you just graduate and you're starting out as a businessman and then mm-hmm. all of this stuff about you being a Nazi comes out. That's going to destroy you. Right. And... Todd at 14 is not mentally able to, to like comprehend that, let alone understand how to like do anything about it. Right. And he leaves that night just kind of in a daze. They have some dreams. Um, and then he goes off to Hawaii. Right. But before he goes to Hawaii, that night literally before he goes to Hawaii, uh, he goes down to that uh, train yard and he tries to find the same wino and he thinks it's the same one. But at the end of the day, he says it doesn't matter. Right. And he goes in and he kills him with a butcher knife. <clears throat> that he bought at a discount store. For, you know, you know a, a couple bucks maybe. He, had, he at least had the forethought to not take a knife from home. home. Um, well, and, I mean, like, and, it's very you know, planned. Like, he does a, like, he actually, he has a complete idea of what he's going to do. And, and keep in mind, he's 14 at this point and that's just crazy to me you know most you know most serial killers the the uh they start with like you know pulling the wings off flies and then animals and things like that and this 
this kid goes straight from zero to killing a human in a year. Yeah. Just from talking to this guy. Right. Um, so it's July now in 13. And this is, so it's been officially a year now. Um, Dusander has gotten a, he gets a little postcard from Todd in Hawaii. And then Dusander pretty much uh, lures a homeless man back to his house mm-hmm. and kills him. Uh, and this is the first one that we know of. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the first one. I, I think it's the first person up to this point yeah, this is the in first his modern time. time. Yeah, in here in this town in South California. Um, Mr. Dosander, or Todd comes back. And uh, it, this is where, you know, we get, it's similar to uh, uh, Shawshank in this way. You know, yeah. where at the beginning, like, you know, half of it is really detailed and really, like, specific. And then it gets into this vagueness of, like, okay, and here's, because of all of this setup, here's how the story plays out. Right. So, well, and, you know, it says that Todd goes to high school across town, so he's being bust. And so it's not as convenient for him to just come over every day. And so there's there starts to be some distance, but there's still that tension, that, that control tension. Right. And so... Um, throughout high school, you know, we start to like really go through these years fast. You know, that mm-hmm. first year uh, middle or in uh, ninth grade when he talked to Ed French. But now uh, by 15, we're already in his junior year. And we learn that, you know, he's playing football and he's all state, all conference. He's um, top of his game at baseball. He's the average all-American blonde kid. Right. You know, right. Good. You know, good, his grades brought up. He had that one rough patch, but his grades are good. He's. You know, doing all the he's doing all the right things now. Right. During the same time, uh, he kills a bunch of people. I think a total of six killed four Delericks. Yeah. Um, and then yep. during that same time, Dustander starts killing people too. Right. So because the two of them have meddled in each other's life so deeply, they've just brought out these monsters. Yes. And now they're murdering linos and drunks everywhere. Right. Um, and then we get to sixteen. So in 1978, Todd joins the Rifle Club. uh, You know, it doesn't end up being a strong choice for him. Well, I mean, for him, it's probably a strong choice. But for people on that expressway, it is the (laughs) worst choice possible. And uh, this is the first time, too, you know, Todd gets this weird, starts to get this weird impulse to kill himself, Mm -hmm. to commit suicide, to just stop everything. Uh, To me, you know subconsciously i bet at this point todd's just got so much guilt right and shame and anger and fear just all wrapped and, and up and he doesn't and know how to cope with it and it's not like he can you know well, go I to really a think it's that therapist to cope with it. i think that it's he's shoving it down so deep inside of him that he doesn't even realize he could cope with it right like he doesn't even acknowledge it exists and so now it's starting to come out and leak out in these ways here you know mm-hmm. um and I just think that the way that Stephen King writes his depression, like, and anxiety just mm-hmm. starting to escalate and escalate and escalate as, like, the factors and environment in his life gets worse and worse. Brilliant. It's yes. really, really good. Well, I love that aspect of it. I do love that. And the fact that he can still put on his school face and do his schoolwork and 
baseball and football and rifle club and you know he functions very normally in his day-to-day but in his mind he is falling apart yep he's not doing great not doing great um so uh todd ends up uh, saturday a few weeks after i score missed the 30 30 so this is the first time he goes up to the little ridge uh over the the expressway and he um, takes all the bullets out of his gun and he sits up there and he just pulls the trigger. Yeah, he just dry fires at and pointing at people and... You know, and bang, gotcha. And just, you know, letting off steam that way in, in the scariest way possible. Um, and uh, the next chapter that we get is probably the longest chapter in the rest of this section. Um, during this section, Dustander has brought a wino back to his place. Yeah, we're in 17. 17 now. And he is uh, bringing, he's doing the murder, you know, right, as right. like he does. His his, his mo is to uh, give a, a bum a bus fare, and then have them get off at the stop after he after Dusander gets off, and bring them back to his house and feed them and give them a couple drinks, and then he while kills them that, he while stabs he, he stabs and buries them in his basement. So this one, he does all that, stabs him in the neck. But this guy stands up, turns around and starts to run out of the house with a knife in his neck. No, that's not this one. That was the one before this one. This one is the one where he has the heart attack. Yeah, no, it's because he. I'm assuming it could said. No, the the one before this. Oh, he has the heart livelier. attack when he's like yeah. uh, digging the grave. So he kills this guy. He falls down in the. Uh, uh, kitchen, he starts to uh, drag him over to the cellar door, drags him down there, you know. And it's during all this, too, it's nice because we get basically his whole process process mm-hmm. for a murder. And during, uh, he brings him down to the cellar, he starts to dig the hole, and during digging the he- hole uh, to bury this man, he has a heart attack. So he crawls his way back upstairs and he calls Todd, of course. Because, of course, he calls Todd. And he says, I need you to come over here. I need your help. I've had a heart attack, uh, but you can't tell your parents. Tell them that I've gotten a letter and I need you to come and read it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Todd rushes over there telling his parents exactly what he says. And uh, Todd just comes in and he sees all the blood and he starts freaking out. And he's like, downstairs, you'll understand. And Todd comes back upstairs and he's kind of changed. You know, he's gone. Right. Very, blank. yeah, very blank, but also very businesslike. He's like, okay, I know exactly what I have to do. And, you know, he just does it. He starts, digs the hole, he cleans up everything. Um, and then he calls the ambulance. And in, for some reason, he decides to call his father. Um, well, I mean, he's a kid. And that would, you know, if, if you were in that situation and this, Old older gentleman that uh, you might not have. I wouldn't have at all. I would have called if I was. I would have called in this situation. a parent or somebody to come hold my hand because that would be what was expected. You know, because his dad doesn't know any of this. Yeah. Think about that. His dad doesn't know any of this. I just all feel he knows like is the that the smartest thing would have just been to call the ambulance, have Dusander say everything, and then dip. Like, right. Leave. But don't be there. But then if. It was, you know, his parents found out that he was in the hospital. They'd be like, well, well, why didn't you stay with him? Why didn't you let him know you were the only person he's got? And 
because that would be yeah, that's true what too. would be expected. It's just a matter of timing and then like leaving, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it makes sense. It's just that this and then the letter, like the right. whole letter in German is so it's just a little too contrived for me. I just don't think that realistically, if I called my parents and I was like, hey, I'm at this old man's house and he just had a heart attack, they're going to rush over. And I don't think that that letter will be something they ever even remember or think about. But I feel like that, on the other hand, this this man has been a part of this family, even just on kind of an outside peripheral for years at this point. You know, he's a junior in high school and he met him when he was in seventh grade. So, you know, he's been a peripheral part of this family for five years. And so, you know, they don't say that he goes to dinner more than once, but maybe he's been over to dinner or maybe he's been over, you know, maybe his parents have gotten to know him a little bit through the years. We don't know that, but, and, and he's still also a kid. So, you know, his dad can take care of things for him. Yeah, and I just guess it kind of gets him, if he brings in his dad, it gets him a little bit, like, of immunity, a little bit more of a shield. Right, you know, right. It makes him look less suspicious because he called his dad and, like, freaked out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. I just feel like the fact that this letter becomes such an important plot point, it feels really forced. Yeah. It doesn't feel very natural. I don't know. And I can I can see that, but it's just too convenient. The the detective. I, we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. We're getting ahead. Regardless, of ourselves. We'll fi- let's finish the, the yeah. review. Um, okay, so then we get into uh, so Todd finishes everything up and they leave and Dick's like, "Good job, you did a great job, son. I'm so proud of you." Right. Um, chapter eighteen is <laughs> weird. It's and weird. Long, yeah. But and I mean, the point of it at the end of it, you get it, is uh, we introduced to Morris Heisel. And he was a uh, Jewish man that was in the concentration camp that Dussander worked for. Right. That was in charge and, of. Right. And, and, and you know, Morris ends up in the hospital yep. also. And he, he breaks his he back. He breaks his back. And he's sitting in the hospital. Dussander is also in the hospital from his heart attack. And they end up in the same shared room. Um, he wakes up one night and he sees him and he's like, I know that face. I just can't place can't it. Can't place it. Um, and so now we're in this... Uh, fun tense moment of will this guy out Dussander or will Dussander get out of the hospital in time right and and you know I'm sure that you know that feeling that you see somebody you know you know them but you cannot pick it out of your brain and then what triggers it what the final thing that makes the connection for him is and and I'm sure that almost everybody can relate to this is they say something or they do something or they have a mannerism that is familiar and is is kind of the key to that and he says um to a nurse who got engaged um to tell us everything what did he say i don't remember exactly how he said it tell us everything leave no detail or yeah. something like that spare no detail spare no detail and and, it's and it was a, a, a it was the key mm-hmm. yeah um, and during all this, Todd's family comes to visit him, and it's very nonchalantly, you know, just two men in a hospital. Um, and then Morris, you know, we think that he's paralyzed. Uh, and I know it might feel like we're kind of like really just glazing over this character, but 
but it's how he's introduced and pretty much how right like, i mean that's it he, he breaks his back he's in the hospital they share a room that's that's what his point is his entire existence All right and so uh oh man this is where it gets a little confusing God, just because it so much happens in each chapter. And I get Todd was a senior because he graduated during this while Dusander was in the hospital. Right. He was a senior. So he graduated doing the things, A minus average. You know, he's, you know, he, he got it together in high school. And so when he's there visiting after graduation, you know, his, uh, the, the roommate, uh, Morris, you know, introduces himself and, which is to me really weird. I I mean, I didn't introduce. I, I was in the hospital once and was real sick, and I didn't introduce myself to my roommate's family. I thought that was really weird. But I feel like it's different when you're an old man and there's no cell phones. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. That's the biggest thing. Is it's just like I'm and sh- you and get to a point where you're just so well. Lonely. And his wife was injured, so she couldn't come see me either. And right because she twisted her ankle or something. And um. And during all of this, as Todd is coming to visit him, uh, you know, he pretty much outs Todd as being a murderer and tells him, you know, I've known that you've been murdering people. Right. Um, and that, you know, makes Todd everything worse for Todd. Um, he starts self-harming himself um, just to kind of not have to think about these mm-hmm. things. And everything's starting to escalate, too. You know, he's starting to... He's doing just as many murders. He's starting to go up to the top, the ridge more often and right. like, shoot his... Dry fire his gun. Um, and Mr. DeSander on his uh, the hospital bed after Todd saves his life just tells him that he was lying about the deposit box. Right. There was no document and that he's fine. Um, and Todd doesn't believe him because, I mean, why would you? Right. At this point, why would he? But, you know, the the thing that happens that really gets me is, you know... Somebody finally, between them, they had finally killed enough derelict people that somebody had taken notice. Mm -hmm. Not just somebody, like the media and like like it was starting to be popularized almost. Right. You know, like galvanized. People were really starting to hear about it. Right. And so, you know, they, they didn't make the front page of the paper, but they did make the second page of the paper. Right. So... Um, after we have all of that happen is we get another section of Morris mm-hmm. and we find out that he is not uh, um, paralyzed. Right. During this, the nurse comes in and they're chatting and that is when um, uh, you must sit down and tell us all about it. That's what I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when he gets the little like realization and uh, he has, falls asleep. He has this wild dream of being in the um, in Patin or Patton or mm-hmm. I'm not. I think it's Patton. Yeah. But um, it's it's really like oof. Like well, it's it's the other perspective of, of the, the story mm-hmm. that Dusander told earlier with the stew. You know, he's the Morris is the person being interrogated with the stew with the technique. stew technique. Um, the next section and like it's starting to get really now we're seeing like four different storylines all being told around the same time and Mm -hmm. uh, we're about to start Todd's storyline where uh, they start that day and Todd ends up uh, finding out that he is all American Mm -hmm. in football and his baseball baseball, Mm -hmm. and his picture is on the front page of the 
sports section of the sports paper. section of the paper. Mm -hmm. um, he's talking to his dad, and he's you know he's talking about congratulations and a lot of through a lot of this we hear a lot of uh, Todd's sexual struggles that he's been having. Right. Um, and he's you know it's really just starting to be. Uh, Things are really coming to a head for they're Todd. Really they really are. I mean, they're to the point that that Todd is, you know, again, his day-to-day, -day, you know, going to work, doing those things, he's functioning pretty normally. But outside of any of that, he is he's really struggling. Yeah. Um, his dad tells him congratulations. Todd doesn't really seem to care. Um, and Todd's also starting to get, uh, this is the moments where we're starting to see how anti-Semitic Todd is now being, too. Right. Um, he's really starting to really starting to come down on anybody of a Jewish faith or descent. Um, then we get in chapter 22, which is another chapter with Ed French. And this is the most dated thing I've ever read before. Yes. Um, so Ed French is at a conference in a little town somewhere, and he's sitting in his hotel room, and he has nothing to do. So he pulls out the yellow pages, and he just starts... The, the white pages. The white pages. Excuse me. Sorry, I haven't looked at a phone book in 20 years. And... Uh, he starts just flipping through, looking for somebody that he knows. Looking for a name he recognizes. And he decides the first name he finds, you know, is Bowden. And it's uh, Todd's, or Todd's grandpa, grandfather. His real grandfather. So he calls him, and his grandfather's like, I never talked to you. Who are you? Why are you talking to me? <laughs> right. And I don't like, know what you're talking about. Uh, really confused, and he just asks if he can come and see him. Mm -hmm. And that's where that section ends for us. Um, but it really... Because, you know... The pieces are starting to come together, and, and things are starting. It's coming together and falling apart. Um, oh, no, we don't end that. No, he ends up going out to uh, the guy's house mm -hmm. that day, his grandpa's house, sees him, and he realizes, He's like, like, that, no, is, not I have that been, is not the man I talked to. Yep, I've been I have been had. Um, we get into 23, and we start to see Dust Sander. Uh, Dust Sander wakes up, and as he does wake up, he realizes that his roommate is gone, and there is now a almost when he describes him, it makes me think of Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, just a <laughs> right. man in a suit with a big afro, and he's got a Star of David hanging down, mm -hmm. and he's essentially a Nazi hunter from Israel, right? Um, and he's a detective to find Nazis and like bring them in because Israel's still really coming down on the Nazis, right? Right. You know, I mean, for this is the genocide that they committed. Right. This is still the the late seventies, so you know, there's they're still actively there's no amnesty. Yeah, they're they're still actively hunting. And uh, his name's Weinkopf, and he pretty much tells him, "I know who you are. I'm going to get that information out of you, um, and I'll see you soon." And right. it's really, you know, even Dussander is terrified. Well, sure, because, you know, he has been on the run for you know, 40 years. and Yeah. You know, it's the wheels are coming off. Uh, we he ends that section with, I know what I have to do. We right. flip real quick to Ed French, and Ed French is going into the old school uh, library to go through the cards and to talk about it. go through the it. records, right. And he essentially finds that all of the report cards, Todd's report cards through the that, like, last five years. Well, but he goes back to that one report card that Todd has modified over and over. 
because nobody really, you know, we talked about that they have to turn in their report cards, and so they were kept in his records, and... Well, it's, Todd has been doing it for the last three years, though. It's not no, just that no, he just did year. it that one year. No, because, it says the report card in those files for three years now had been carefully, almost professionally doctored. So not only after that first year, Todd continued to keep uh, faking his grades. So there's even that idea that did he actually continue to be a straight-A student or was he just... It's a 264 right above 25. Yep. Um, so it's not even just that one year. It's that Todd's been cheating this whole time. At least that's how that made me think about it. Well, I... You know what I mean? Because I just... that For doctoring your files for three years... See, that's not how I read it. Oh. I just think that he doctored that one because after that he had kind of gotten, he wasn't seeing Dusander. He it was that one year when that, things though. fell like apart. That, and that's like but well, but he says that he says you know I'm not going to be able to see you as much because I have to go to school. No, no, time. I get that, but we only assume that his grades continue. I mean, I guess that's true. And I think, but that, then you know when he graduates, he graduates salutatorian of his class, so his grades but is actually that because were because he's that. been cheating this whole time. He couldn't well. He wouldn't have graduated salutatorian if he was cheating the report card because his parents would have seen the good grades, but he wouldn't have actually had the good grades. Hmm. Then I wonder why he was cheating for three years. Like, yeah, what was he know. still doctoring? Yeah. Um, maybe he just wanted to look better to his parents than he actually did. He was that insecure about it. Um, regardless, though, um, we get into chapter 25, and Mr. DeSander uh, ends up killing himself and just takes a bunch of pills. Yeah, he he sneaks out to the drug closet and and gets some gets some uh, virinal <laughs> virinal. No, I yeah. think it's uh, what does he say? He says specifically, oh, second all and virinal. Mm-hmm. And he ends up uh, overdosing that night. Um, you know, it's and then it has this little bit about how the nurse like burst into tears, not understanding why an old man who was getting better would ever do such a thing. Right. Um, just you know, showing that like his the front that he had put up was right. that good. Well, right, because he he was charismatic and he was friendly and and he was charming to the end. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, it's announced that he's a Nazi fugitive and he just died. And they find out on the news at the Bowden house. That's how we, the reader, find out as well. And Dick stands up and he says, oh, my God, everyone come here. And he comes and he sees that he's a Nazi. And Todd faints in the mm-hmm. middle of their living room. Uh, you know, and it's we get these this next like uh, section as well is just the same point of time, but from Ed French's point of view. And right. he finds out in that same moment that that man was a Nazi war criminal. And he was and he like, says, oh, my gosh. I talked to that man. That I, pretended. That's right. I know who that is. Yeah. That's the guy. So he puts it all together. Um, chapter 28 is. Well, no. And we need to we need to talk about here the front page of the newspaper when he was on the newspaper. Uh, a wine. It, we, haven't had, to, we haven't gotten to that yet. We haven't gotten to that. It's, it's later when Richler, it? like after Richler interviews him. And he's talking to Wisecoff. Oh, that's right. You're right. So we get into chapter 28 and Richler, which is now the detective. The local detective. That is uh, investigating uh, all of the Wino murders. And this mm-hmm. is our, really our first like time meeting him. 
Um, and he's sitting there and he's asking uh, them all these questions. And he well, he's them, he, well, he they found the bodies in Dusander's house, and so they're asking him, you know, how he knew him and what he did, and they talk about what he's read to him, and um, and it's. Richler is really smart and he's really good. He doesn't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's fun the way that Steve does it too is because uh, we don't know that Richler has anything yet. Right. And they're doing right. this conversation. It's just presented as him trying to find out more about uh, Denker through uh, Todd because he knew him so well. Right. But as soon as he leaves, we get, off, uh, you know, Todd thinks he did so good and he thinks he tricked this guy. Mm -hmm. Um Richler walks out, and then he pretty much says to Weisskopf, oh, that kid's creepy, and he murdered those people. Right. For sure. For sure. Um, and he talks about how he tripped him up once when he said, uh, did he get any calls? And he could see that Todd's eyes just lit up with the lie. Right. Um, yeah, he, all the time. Yep. And, and he was immediately able to just be like, and we know that's not true because of the phone records. And mm -hmm. this is where Richler starts to really, like, lay out everything that we never found out, you right. know, that because of that paper in the picture, a, the wino, the very first one that he was talking to mm -hmm. that was not murdered, actually, is the one that is able to he identify shows up, him. Right. He shows up at the police station and is like, no, I know who it is. I know who it is. It's, it's this, this kid. kid on it's the, this kid on the paper. He's the one that's been doing the murders. I saw him walking away with one of the victims. Um, and then on top of that... Uh, what was the other thing that they had? Uh, well, and then the phone thing that he ends up setting himself on. Right. Um, and. Well, and, and this is where they try, uh, Weisskopf and Richler try to figure out his motivation. They're like, why would this kid do, you know, who kn obviously knew who this was, do all these things and hide this for this guy. He said, it's obviously not for blackmail. It's not like Dusander had any money and, and the kids got everything that the all-American average teenage boy would want. Right. So and it just, just doesn't make sense. They're, you know. And then they start to realize that they, they get they draw a similar conclusion that it's probably because Todd is also murdering people. Mm -hmm. And that is not just him, you know, helping to send or give victims. It's because he's committing murders. Right. And then that's when the the wino shows up and confirms confirms his suspicion that, yeah, this is the guy, this this kid. I don't think he thinks that Desander, I don't think that. Richler thinks he's doing the murders until after he talks to Todd because of the way that he right. says, uh, or no, I don't think that he doesn't think it until after he interviews Todd and then Weiskopf is like, I think Todd might be the murderer. And that's when Richler starts like looking, looking at, him at as the a murderer. things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting that, you know, even like that American detective didn't immediately consider him a suspect. He just considered him a little boy that was well, involved. And, and, you know, an accomplice, yeah. but not necessarily, um, the murderer the himself. The murderer himself, right. Um, chapter 29 is the moment we've been talking about and getting a little mm -hmm. too uh, overzealous about. But um, Hap is his name. And he comes in. Uh, it's the wino that we met earlier, and he identifies mm -hmm. Todd. Um, and then uh, we... It's really great. I really love this transition here um, mm -hmm. because he actually changes the scene in the middle of a paragraph, and you don't really realize it until you're like halfway through starting to read about Todd. Because it goes right from Lieutenant Bozeman into he got up and then his parents were saying something. Right. Um, so it's just a real swift transition right into that to see where Todd's at. Mm -hmm. Ed French pulls up to the uh, his, you know, 
garage to into the house, this driveway. Right. His parents have already left. Ed French, uh, there was, uh, you know, Todd's been sitting there thinking about how, you know, he's probably going to get away with it. There's nothing to really connect him, like, concretely to him. Then Ed French pulls up and he realizes Ed French is the one that can connect us yep. in person. In person, to for real. Plotting and, and conspiracy. And Todd pulls up and he says, the man in that picture was the man who came to my office. And he says, how did this happen? What happened? And he says, oh, just one thing happened to another. Um, and then uh, he shoots said French. Yep. Shoots him right in the tummy. He shoots him. He goes backwards, flies onto the uh, to the car. And then he walks up, shoots him in the head. He starts laughing, grabs all of his bullets. And he just, there's something, I think what's interesting uh, is... The way that it writes is the way that it reads and the way that I feel Steve wrote it is that there's just something that like snaps and clicks. Yes. That was like everything was was falling down and nothing was quite right. And he knew, you know, he knew that he had screwed up because he was replaying his discussion with Richler and he's like the phone calls. That's going to be the thing. And then the letter, too. And he told him about the letter. And so, you know, he's like you know, finding the flaws in their what discussion and what he had said and, and realizing that, you know, this is not good and I've done these things and, and it's going to be a mess. And, you know, and then Ed French shows up and he's like, this is it. This is the straw that's going to break everything because this is, this is a person, this is a respected teacher, counselor, you know, people know who he is and they're going to they're going to trust his thing and then he's going to come along and say I did these things right. and and that'll be that's it that's the end of it um and so Todd does the murder cleans up the loose end but he just does it on his regular street yeah. uh, and something clicks inside of him he says he has the major pain and then the world's filled with beauty he grabs all of his bullets and he goes up to that ridge mm-hmm. that he's been going to the whole time and uh you know, we don't get anything graphic or anything like that. We no. just get uh, five hours later in almost dark, they took him down. Yeah. And that's the end of the the, the short story. Um, you know, and it's really, it's a good way to end it. Uh, not Dust Sander. I, I hate how Dust Sander was ended. But I think that the Todd ending is really great. Yeah. You know, like very vague and open to interpretation and uh, where he could have ended up. Did he end up in prison? Did he end up getting, you know, classically American shot down by the police right. or what happened to him? Right. Uh, and yeah, I really feel like we we spent 50 minutes doing this, so I don't feel like that was a recap. I feel like we just analyzed we it just as analyzed we went the through. whole thing. Yeah, we so through. yeah, we didn't do a recap. This is gonna, like, yeah, we're already at two hours <laughs> in the episode, so we should just chat about it and rate it. I feel right. like, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I really. I feel like the big thing about it is that since it comes right after Shawshank, like if I was just reading through this, mm-hmm. I would not. It's from such a different like perspective and point of view that like you don't really like notice it. But I don't think it's as good as Shawshank, in all honesty. I don't think it is either. Um, and, you know, the, you'll find when we read the, the other two stories in this book that they're all four very, very different. Um, you know, because different seasons. And we're going to do fall. I don't remember. Early April, I think, is when we do Something the body. Like yeah. Um, but it's it's again, it will be a huge shift in tone. And this one, to me, this one played through like a movie in my mind. I could see it all because mm-hmm. it was just all so average. Um, 
you know, I could see a suburban neighborhood and I could see a kid on the bike. And, and so this one played through like a movie, but it was so twisted and very, very different. Um, you know, he was guilty from the first 10 pages. Yeah. You know, it, it, as opposed to, you know, Andy, who was never guilty. Innocent from the, the onput of the story. Right, right. Um, and, you know, that idea of innocence and guilt are really in the eyes of society. Mm-hmm. Society gets to decide if you're innocent or guilty. And right. for Andy, they decided he was guilty. And for, you know, Todd, for six years, he was innocent. Right. They, he wasn't even looked at with the thought of guilt. Right, right. Because of perception. Right. Um, what was this one called? <laughs> Apt people. Jeez. Yes. I was writing it down. Um, okay. Well, let's rate it then. And then get into just... Uh, did we, uh, oh, oh, since we're in different seasons, though, I have a thing a reader wrote in, a, oh, yeah. a, re- a, listener, a listener wrote in, um, about not this story, but what about Shawshank, yeah, um, it's a little bit longer, but I want to read it, yeah, read it, yeah, Let's um, it. so this is from uh, someone and they asked to remain anonymous, um, but this is, you know, it's really interesting about how the story can relate to us all in different ways. Um, And like I said, this is about Shawshank Redemption uh, and our episode that we posted in December, January, I think. Yeah, it was New Year's Uh, Day. New Year's Eve. Uh, Or New Year's Eve, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, so I just love the overall story. Uh, And at this point, I had actually reached out and we were talking about it and Mm -hmm. I had asked like, well, what did you, what did Shawshank mean to you? Like, could you tell me? And he says, when I got really hooked was when Andy was able to successfully negotiate better outcomes with the guards and his work crew on the tar roof. Getting them a great reward and in turn being able to help those guards may have been a diversion, but could have been just the beginning of where he didn't have interest in not being noticed about the wall in his cell yet. Fast forward to getting the poster and Ed Red asking what in those posters mean to him. Andy says, why they mean the same thing to me as most cons, I guess. Freedom. You see those pretty women and you feel like you could almost step right beside them. I liked when he pointed that out because I remember mm-hmm. us talking about yep. that. It's just such a like specific like allusion to mm-hmm. what he's doing. When I read that part, I was like, what's he getting at? But by the time of his escape, it made perfect sense. Then I just was thinking that how, uh, then I was just thinking that how the ending was had the perfect message. It spoke to me that you don't give up on hope. Once you do, you will be crushed. Look at Andy. The whole time he refused to give up hope. Hope that he could have it better on the inside. Hope that he could maybe get better for the inmates. Hope that he could improve that library, even if it was a diversion. Hope that he was not guilty and that Norton could not break him. Hope that he would get out and be free. Hope drove so much of this man, and you have to have it in the darkest times to see light. Even after 27 years in, he was able to hold hope, and I think that this was his main like message and true legacy to those that truly knew what, him that were inside. How it impacted me so much. I struggled a lot this week in my job. I slowly began to feel resentment of a job I loved. I still mostly like it, but this week was bad. A lot has happened to me at the end of 2020. My wife's grandfather, who was truly amazing, passed away. My dad got diagnosed with ALS and is struggling to realize what the, what that means for him. And watching him slowly lose a lot of things he used to do as an independent person is hard to watch. Work is still work, and at times it just gets to me. I'm working from home now and have been since March as last year to a co- and have been since March of last year due to COVID. We were all ordered to work from home. It's hard sometimes to separate from my personal life right now. The stress, and this is speculation for me, I've never been incarcerated, feels like a prison for me. A specific area in my home that I would go to and enjoy whatever is now where my work things are. 
When I enter my workspace, it can feel like all I think about is work in that moment. The end of this story spoke to me and says, there is hope. Do not ever waver from it. It felt very uplifting to me. And I think that, yeah, I agree 100% Absolutely, about the message of hope. Yeah. It's such it a is. strong message of hope through it. To thank you so much for telling us this. Like The fact that you reached out and shared this with me really means the world to me. I loved reading it, and I loved being able to share it with other people. Yeah, you know, hearing, getting feedback and getting response and, and knowing that the things that Stephen King has written have touched you also, because this is, reading Stephen King has been such a huge part of my life. I've been doing it forever. Um, and, and you know, there are things, especially Shawshank, you know, we talked about it in that episode that probably my, no, absolutely my favorite quote that he ever wrote ever is get busy living or get busy dying. And it comes from that story. And to me, I, you know, knowing that that story touched somebody else, you know, it, it just really makes me feel good that, you know, I'm not, I'm not crazy. (laughs) Um, I'm going to pause. Um, and I don't remember what I wanted to say about the story. Dang. It just meant a lot that he shared it with us, that they shared it with us. It yeah. just meant a lot that they shared it with us. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and that's, it's it's super cool. We love getting feedback and, and stories and... You know, oh, I would never remember what I was going to say. For me, since I'm just now really starting to come into the Stephen King community, it was nice to know that my first time through is reminiscent of others. That what I feel and what I gathered and what I thought about the story hit home in a similar way to other people. And while it may not have been the same parts of the story, the fact that we got to the same place makes me feel really connected to everyone. And I think that you're going to find that a lot because there's a lot of constant readers out there that I, I feel, I hope, will reach out and share, you know, their first impressions as as they're reading through the first time with right. us or, you know, laugh at the fact that, you know, your <laughs> theories are so crazy like your mom does. Um, yeah, I don't think it's, I think there's a lot of people that enjoy me uh, going wild with my theories. Yes. So yeah, we will keep that, it up. Yeah. Um, but thank you for sending in that uh, story. And if you have anything that you'd like to say about your first time reading through any of the Stephen King books that we've read so far, or if there is something in particular that, you think that we should know going forward we'd love to hear from you you can like us on facebook at first time through podcast Mm -hmm. you can like uh, or follow us on twitter at the same link or you can email us at auto at first time through podcast.com or kim at first time through podcast.com and or just send us facebook message just uh, literally any way you think that you would talk to your friends is probably how you can talk to us if you want you can have my phone number just let me know (laughs) Um, but let's get into rating app pupil. Um, okay, everything is fine now. Is it? Is everything fine, or did I ruin it? I think it's okay. Good. Um, so plot, writing, the it factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you went first last time, right? Yes. Let so me it's go your first turn. this time. All right, so for plot, I'm going to give this guy a solid eight, seven. Uh, you know, I think that, like, I think that regardless of how I look at anything, this is going to be, like, the bottom of our list so far. 
just because like compared to the stand in misery in right. Shawshank Redemption, like sorry, like I'm sorry after people, you're fine, you're good, but you're not that good. Um, plot wise for eight for, or seven for me, sorry. Um, and I give it a seven because about halfway through, it feels like Stephen King didn't know what to do anymore. It really feels like halfway through, he gets them into this Mexican standoff scenario. He gets them into this impasse and it, it feels it stalls a little bit for me. You know, it gets the the like I said earlier, the letters really contrived and real convenient for me. Right. Um, and it's just the fact that that ends up being like such a big plot point and like overarching theme for this murder investigation bothers me still. Um, and I mean, I get it. Like the details matter. And like, those are the kind of things that probably would end up catching someone up, but I just wish it would have been played out better. I guess. I don't know. There's just something about it that bothers me. And I guess I can't put my finger on it right now and like say exactly what it is. Um, so I get to seven for me because I still really enjoyed the setup. I really enjoyed like the idea of like this flip and like the power struggle between the two characters and like, you know, it's always interesting to read about Nazis. Right. Uh, for some reason, it really, truly is. Uh, I know when when you started it, you're like, I'm I'm not sure about this. And you got about ten or twelve pages in, and you're like, Oh, it's about a Nazi. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> so, yeah. No, from the very beginning, the moment that there was that Nazi review, like, okay, I was like, I'm, I'm more I'm interested. In. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what'd you give for a plot? So the it factor. Oh wait, plot. Oh, oh, oh I didn't give a plot. Um, I don't. Know, I'm probably also about a seven. I think that I'm probably sevens on this one because it's not my favorite but it's I mean it's still really engaging it's still a good story but I have kind of yeah yeah I feel you yeah. and it's just it's just stacking it up against other things and yes. I feel like we're gonna have to like reevaluate some of these rankings as we read more things as I well. think so too um all right writing wise uh the I don't really have many issues with it I just think that there's sections of it that are just too monotonous. You know, the Todd's first introduction where he's playing with Denker at the beginning is fun because it's how Denker is getting that information. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, he's playing with us in that way. But later on, when we have, you know, 18 pages of Heisel being introduced and breaking his back, it's just kind of bloated and unnecessary in those moments. Yeah. You know? It would have been just as powerful if he would have just been in the hospital. Right. We didn't need to know about him breaking his back and his marital troubles and his neighbor's dog and all of these things. They were just it's unnecessary details we didn't need. Right. Um, and so for me, I'm giving it a six. Okay. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to stick with I'm I'm going to give it sevens. Seven. Yeah. Um, because while. I agree with you about Morris that it's not necessarily important that we know all of his background, but at the same time, I think that knowing that about his late wife and his daughters and knowing that, but I guess we could have gotten that while he was laying in the hospital and just, you know, that's my biggest thing. You know, this is this how I'm really going to end it is paralyzed after all the things that I've been through. And then, you know, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's my biggest thing is because you could have even had that nurse character be a bigger part of the story. Mm -hmm. And she could have, you know, it would have been more emotionally impactful that Denker is tricking her constantly. Right. You know, and then 
And then, like, that's the thing for me is it's just the way that he revealed all of that information in a book, you know, that it makes sense that you do it this way. But, right. like, you know, when, in a movie, it wouldn't have made sense. Right. And I think that, like, that's just me as, like, you know, a 28-year-old man living in the world that I live in now is that's how I ingest content, you right. know, is I binge it. it is. And right. It's just something that, like, it's different in the world. And I think, though, that because of that, it puts an interesting perspective on what I have to say about these novels. Yes, absolutely. It, because, it, it, yeah, it's a generational thing. I mean, it, we, we, you and I even, consume media very, very differently. Yep. Um, and I think that, so it's important to, I think that that's what I love about our podcast so far, is that because we're digesting these things that are, you know, older for a different mm-hmm. generation, but we're getting two different generational viewpoints on it. Right. It really becomes something of how do these books stand up the test of time? Right. What is this legacy of King going to be? Does it still connect with, you know, a younger reader? Right. And I think that it's fascinating that the answer is ultimately yes, yes. it does. Yeah. And and I think that... And there's issues and there's problems. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still doing this podcast. Right. And you're still and enjoying still everything that we've read so far. We have a and... year of books planned out because of how much we've enjoyed it. Yes. So, so... if nothing else, there's a legacy to be had. Right. And, you know, I feel like that... Um, a lot of people, and, and I, it's better now, but so many people just dismiss King as being basically a Pulp Fiction writer. Right. And because he just worked so much. I mean, you know, he's 73 years old and going to put out two new books this year. Yep. And I mean, that's just, he's so prolific. And so I think people dismiss him because he writes so much so fast. But, you know, we study Dickens now in English, and I think in the future people are going to study King because Dickens was also a pulp writer. Right. I mean, you know, that's he was. But I mean, like, if you he look wrote back popular at, like, fiction, the greatest writers of all time, like it's oftentimes quantity over quality. Sometimes, you right, know, right, right. Well, you can't and, be considered your work can't be considered great if you don't have work. Right, and you know. The, the stuff that stands the test of time was what was popular. You know, Homer's stories are long. The Iliad and the Odyssey right. are long. Long stories. But I know almost all of... I could recite the Odyssey for you right now if you wanted me to. Not like right. word for word, word but I could tell you, you the tell story. But you could tell the story. Right, sure. absolutely. The amount of times that I've played through it in a video game or seen it in a movie or just read a different version of the mm-hmm. story is phenomenal. Right. Um, but... Regardless, we digress. <laughs> uh, the it factor. The it factor. For me, this is probably the highest category. I'm going to give it an eight. Um, okay. Just because I really love the story and the Nazi aspect and the entitlement that it shows with this like suburban kid. And um, I truly think that this is a story I would tell other people to read. Just because it's it's interesting to me to show how trauma doesn't come from the most likely places. Right. How I you... If you dig too far into someone else's business and background and, like, if you take it upon yourself to know more about someone than they let you know, there's consequences. There's repercussions. Mm -hmm. It's none of your business because it was none of your business to begin with. So the only reason this 13-year-old boy ends up, you know, becoming a serial killer and a mass murderer is because of his entitlement. Because he thinks that he can do whatever he wants. Right. 
and I mean, I mean, of course, Dust Sander helps. Like, don't well, get sure, me wrong. Sure, like, but, he really. But the the seed of it is from his parents. That entitlement that, that his parents entitlement, give him. Yeah. And I think that that's such an interesting look at the world of suburban life for a child. Right. And the fact I, that he does it through the view lens of a Nazi serial killer is brilliant. Yeah, it's a. I've I've always enjoyed this story and. You know, we we talked about earlier, you know, me reading this the first time um, all those years ago. And this was high on my list of, you know, we should read this one because it's it's fascinating. But I'm still going to stick with my sevens, sevens across the board. Yeah, because there are just so many and there are so many things that that we're going to get to and that are going to have even more of an it factor. I can't I mean, there are so many stories that I cannot wait to get to. Um, that it's, it you know, sitting here trying to figure out what we were going to do over the next few months has been, that was really hard for me. You know, I'm sitting there looking at a list of books going, but but all of them are, this one is good because of this, and this one is good because of that. And, oh, let's look at this one because of this other thing. So, um, you know, but this one, it was high, but it wasn't the highest on my list. Yeah. I'm really glad that we're doing different seasons, though, in, like, mm-hmm. these little break format. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, and I thought this was, you know, being the first novella uh, compilation, I thought that this would be a good place to start with these little one-shots for between the, the major novels. Yeah. The Body. Um, I know it's based, uh, Stand By Me, is the, it's the basis for Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've, I've never seen Stand By Me. Um, so I have really like, all I know is it's about four kids that walk down a train tracks to a body. Yeah. So I'm interested to see anything about it. I really don't know. Um, I feel like that, like what's gotta either be interesting is like, there's gotta be like maybe the serial killer like finds him at the body or like they see him or like they, they get accidentally like, maybe they're like, maybe they like mess up somehow and they're like being blamed for the murder. Um, I'm interested to see like exactly what the story is mm-hmm. of this body. I will say though, the concept of just four 12 year olds and one of them says, I found a dead body. You guys want to go look? Yep. That's accurate. hundred percent. Absolutely. Go, I you tell me right now. I'd be like, maybe where I at? mean, <laughs> how far do we have to go? Is it a long Am walk? I <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And you know, I think that I'm not going to go into any of my opinions about that story because it's it's different. Hmm. Um, it's not. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I'm not going to go into any of my theories about that or any of my feelings about that story yet. We'll get to it soon enough. And um, yeah, so thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Um, Come back next week. We're going to start our quest to the Dark Tower. The Gunslinger. Um, you know, actually, real quick, uh, and see if anyone that uh, listens to this has any strong opinions, we're trying to decide, and I think Kim disagrees with me a little bit, um, but we have two copies of The Gunslinger. We have one of the original 1980s paperbacks, Mm -hmm. and then I have a 2020 reprinting, a softcover edition that was made for the movie, like, in collaboration with the movie. Kim's making terrible faces about this, but... In the foreword and introduction of it, that is the version that Stephen King recommends you read. It, it is because there are he some. Fixes continuity there, there's continuity errors from later in the book that, you know, because he originally started writing that first Gunslinger book when he was in college. So that one, the 
that's his magnum opus. Yeah. That that series. And so you know, once he got further in, he realized that there were some continuity errors. So he went back and, and made some corrections in that. And and yeah, I'll probably read the new version <laughs> with the but you know, I do have that older But just to explain, Kim's gonna be reading the older version. I'm gonna be reading the newer version, we yeah. think. Um but if you have any strong opinions, tell us what you think we should be doing. Right. Um so in And March, honestly I'll probably read both of them because <laughs> It's important. So on March 4th, look out for the first episode of The Gunslinger, the first in the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Um, and then the 11th you. will be the second Stephen second uh, Gunslinger. And then on the 18th, we're going to do something completely different. And both of us are going to have a first time through of the new book later. Stephen King's little pulp classic, like a uh, crime thriller, it looks like. Yeah. So excited about that. Um, make sure you stick around and follow us on Facebook. Uh, we're going to be posting up uh, monthly schedules from now on. We're going to be giving you a little bit of a look ahead of what we're going to be doing, posting videos. We're talking about our ratings. We're adding some discussions. And we would really love it if we could talk to you on Facebook a little bit more. We'd yeah, love to hear what feedback. you have to say. And uh, thank you to our new patron, Jake. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it really means... I, I really don't think you will ever understand how much your messages and what you've said means to us. Yeah, it. We we both knew that the hardest part of launching anything like this is garnering interest outside of our immediate friends and family, and and the fact that you guys are listening to us is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So thank you once again. Don't forget to check us out next week. And follow us on Facebook. My name is Otto Mullins. This has been my first time through Apt Pupil. And my name is Kim Payne. And we hope you enjoyed your first time through. Otto, Kim, that was incredibly interesting. Great job today. If you would like to support First Time Through, you can follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, or send us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash first time through to get exclusive early access, to get exclusive videos, and to become our exclusive friends. If that's interested to you, I'm interested. First Time Through, New Eyes on Castle Rock is produced by Empty Theater Productions. It's created by Kim Payne and Otto Mullins. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art.